We think women need to talk more openly about money because money really matters. It shouldn't be embarrassing or confusing. Join the conversation. We'll be discussing a whole range of topics which will help you get comfortable with your finances. Money Matters, brought to you by AJ Bell. Hello, and it's a very special episode of the Money Matters podcast because we're celebrating International Women's Day. As always, Laura Souter is here. Hi, Laura. Hi, Danny. Hi, everyone. So Money Matters has been going for just over a year, and our aim is to make women more confident with their money. And what better time to look back on our journey so far than this day? Because this day really is brilliant at making us think, making us assess where we are and where we need to go. So we're doing things a little bit differently with this episode. First, I've caught up with Baroness Helena Morrissey. She's been campaigning for more diversity in financial services for decades, for pretty much most of her career. Um, And Money Matters is just part of that work that she's doing. Yeah, she's uh, fantastic. And with the theme of this year's International Women's Day being Embrace Equity, I've been chatting to the award-winning journalist and best-selling author of crime thriller The Calm, Simon Mia, about why equal opportunities don't always create equity and how her experiences as a British Muslim woman have made her into the woman she is today. But don't worry, we will still have our usual financial confessional at the end of the show. Um, And I'm really pleased to say that we had an event this week and loads of the audience got involved with submitting their confessionals and dishing the dirt on all of their money mistakes. So we're going to be putting those together and we'll have them on a future episode for you. Yeah, it was really a great night. So thanks to everyone that joined us. And if you couldn't make it, don't worry. We're going to hold more in-person events over the year. So do make sure you sign up to our newsletter so that you hear about them before anyone else. Right, let's dive into that chat that I had with Helena Morrissey. So she's been talking about all the work that she's been doing through her career, but also what else she thinks there is to be done. So it's International Women's Day and you've been battling for years to get more women on board, more women involved in finance. So what do you think has really changed over the past 10 years or so? Well, in general, there's been huge progress, um, particularly obviously on women on boards where we've now gone from less than 10% to 40% now. Um, And to be honest, that's wildly exceeded my expectations. And I think what's been fascinating there as well, you've seen how the lens to which people look at this situation or this issue has changed. So now it's completely normal to have a gender balance or a board approximating um, gender balance. And, you know, 10 years ago, it was absolutely not the case. So that's been fantastic. We've got more, more women in parliament. Uh, we've got more women prime ministers, you know, a lot of progress. Um, the one thing that stands out a bit like a sore thumb is we haven't made much progress in terms of women in finance, uh, particularly women in investment roles. And so why do you think that is? What do you think the barrier is in that particular industry that's stopping more progress? So I think we have an image problem. I think a lot of people, and including a lot of women, think this is still like Wolves of Wall Street. You know, they think it's still very macho, very aggressive, uh, extremely long hours culture, and you have to be a certain type of person to succeed. Whereas there are many different roles in the investment world, and plenty of diverse people do and can succeed um so we've got to get out more and explain as well i think about what we're trying to do as an industry you know we're not about 
um, you know, just making money for its own sake. We're actually got a very strong social purpose, trying to help people, you know, to have more money in their old age or any stage in their lives, you know, to have better financial well-being. And I think, you know, we've got, we've got to be quite proactive about setting the record straight on that. Um, people will just fill a gap and, you know, the apocryphal, legendary kind of things will fill it uh, if we don't proactively explain what it is that the financial services industry does. And I know that you're involved particularly in getting more female fund managers on board and kind of trying to improve the diversity, particularly in that industry. How's progress with that going? So, yeah, I chair something called the Diversity Project. And just to be very clear, it's not just about gender. Uh, We are trying to improve diversity and inclusion across all dimensions in the investment and savings industry. The most recent thing that we've done um, is to launch a a specific program designed to solve this age-old problem of a scarcity of female fund managers. And it's called the Pathway Program. It launched in January 23. Um, 60 women are on the first cohort. And I'm really excited about the potential here because I think what's happened, what I've realized, and this is a self-critical statement, this is not blaming anybody else. I thought, actually, what we've been doing is, you know, quite vague things. encourage women to network, we've encouraged women to apply for roles, we've encouraged women to, you know, speak up when they're on maternity leave and, and express their ambition. But we haven't actually said, you know, we're going to have a programme that really fills the gaps that you might feel you have around confidence levels, around how to behave if you're the only woman in a team of men. Um, just some of the real practical things that women tell us that they need. And so we've got this programme designed to complement professional qualifications on the job training and every woman on the program has to have a sponsor back to her phone. So for the first time forever, literally, I mean, I've worked for 35 years in the city, but the first time I actually feel we're onto something. Um, obviously the proof, as they say, lies in the pudding and you can come back in a couple of years time. I mean, literally there are less than 200 female fund managers in the UK. So we, you know, a few more could move the numbers quite considerably. And why do you think that matters for kind of the average person or the, I guess, more specifically, the average woman on the street? Why does it matter to them that there's more women in finance? Well, again, I think it's a bit of a sort of vicious spiral at the moment. I think a lot of women, we know that a lot of women don't invest. Um, There are a number of reasons for it, but one is that they feel they don't understand. They don't know where to get started. They worry they might get ripped off. There's a whole host of reasons that women cite. One reason, I think, is because they feel this is not for people like them. Um, they see, again, this male face um, of, a, of an industry, and they might feel that they wouldn't personally be understood, their needs might not be met. So I think, you know, our industry needs to reflect the customers that we're looking to serve. Um, and I'm very confident that if people started to just expect, like you do now, you have doctors, don't you, at equal numbers, or probably more women than men, lawyers, more women than men are entering the law's um, profession. You, you kind of expect it could be a man or a woman and you're not really got this sort of image issue in your mind preventing you from, from seeking advice or from just, you know, getting a first step, um, dipping the first toe in the market. So I think it's, it's going to cause more women to feel comfortable that actually this is something for them. And we know from our research into the gender investment gap that there's a whole multitude of reasons why women aren't investing, whether that's down to gender pay gap or taking career breaks or the pension gap. There's so many kind of different factors that play into it. But what one area would you like to see significant progress on over the next five, 10 years, for example, to help reduce that gender investment gap? Is there one area that you think might unlock quite a lot of those other areas? Mm -hmm. 
Well, clearly, I mean, the biggest reason cited is a lack of disposable income for women. And, you know, clearly that's not going to be fixed unless we can solve the gender pay gap once and for all. And again, going back to our opening part of this conversation, I do see progress there. I do see not just a few more women at the top, but more opportunity for, for more women to fulfill their career potential. So we have to keep working on closing the gender pay gap. But then we need to, if I was going to say one other thing that we could do, I'm cheating here, I'm asking for two. I think it's about education and informing and um, really making women feel very much on top of things when it comes to their finances, to, to feeling like it's, I mean, it's like being healthy or, you know, planning for, you know, your your children's education and stuff. You, you kind of do these things um, as a matter of course. You kind of get it into your daily lives, your weekly lives. At the moment, I think finances for many women sort of a once every blue moon kind of thing when usually there's a problem or they're worried about something. So education, so women feel confident and comfortable um, and really feel that they're more in control of their financial destiny. So we've obviously talked a lot about how to kind of get people into investing and that's what a lot of the Money Matters campaign does. But do you think that there's an element where we should be starting earlier than that, starting even before people are thinking about investing? Definitely. I mean, I would love um, more focus on financial education at school level. Um, I think the earlier, the better. And you obviously can make it, you know, like they do wonderful teaching nowadays of maths concepts compared with when I was a child, when it was all very dry and theoretical. And now, of course, it's all brought to life. Um, Money is a great um, aspect of education that you can translate into real life issues. And I just think it would make people feel less scared of the whole concept of money and, and less embarrassed to talk about money. I and mean, I think that does stop us from sort of getting to grips with it. And the earlier we can start, the better. So more on financial education, more um, talk about money issues in the family. I think this is where it all can start. And the theme for this year's International Women's Day is Embrace Equity, which I know is something that you're really working on with your work with the Diversity Project. Um, but what does that kind of theme meme for you and, and for the finance industry particularly? Well, I have to admit, Laura, when I first heard of it, I thought, oh, it's a bit premature for the finance industry because, of course, we are a long way off equity at, at present. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, actually, it is applicable because what we don't want to do is to just focus on equality. And you might think, well, that's a strange thing to say, but actually we don't want to have, you know, sometimes it means that you just treat people the same. Whereas actually men and women often have quite different aspirations and attitudes to money. Um, you know, there's a lot of research that's been done that shows that women are less motivated by the idea of just making money and we're more motivated by the idea of saving and investing for specific life goals. So let's recognize the differences. And also, of course, women aren't all the same. You know, we're all very diverse. We have different educations, backgrounds, personalities, etc. So, so the idea of embracing our differences, embracing the principle of fairness, but accepting that people are different. I think that's what the theme for me represents. And I think that is incredibly important. And I hope would attract a lot of people to think about it um, in a slightly different way. That this is not just about, say, training women to be more like men, for example, but actually um, making sure that the system, that, uh, everything is equitable, whatever your background, your gender, etc. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
Helena Morrissey there. Okay, as we said, this episode is a special episode because we've got not one but two special guests. Simon Mir is a Times best-selling author, an award-winning journalist and a British Muslim woman who has really walked her own path and made quite a success out of the journey. Now, I caught up with her earlier this week, and as well as unpicking the theme of this year's International Women's Day and what it means to her, she also looks back on her career and her experiences of equality. You're now a best-selling author. How does that feel? That feels fantastic. Um it's not something I saw coming because by the time I got published, it took me a long time. From the time the book was written to the time it hit the shelves, it was about seven years. In fact, it was probably nine. Um, so by that time, I was just, I just want to get this thing out. So the best selling bit came as a real shock to the system. And it was just such a nice surprise. It was wonderful. Because <laughs> I would imagine, like like we all do, you sort of think, well... Yeah, I'll I'll put this out into the world, but, you know, maybe someone will like it. Yes, totally. And also because I was writing something that's not on the shelves. So I was writing writing a really strong British Asian woman um, who was um, a barrister, but then a crime boss. So that this just didn't exist. And I, and I didn't know how people were going to receive it and if they were going to like her or not like her, or even if they would believe that this character could exist. Uh, so it's been just really wonderful just to see it on the shelves and the posters all across the country it's been fantastic and not only did people like it but they liked it so much that there was a clamor almost immediately for a sequel which you are working on I guess I've just handed in the first draft um, and I'm waiting for edits so I'm very nervous about this uh, it's due out next year so I've got a whole year to work on it so let's see what comes and I think something that most people won't know about you, um, we met years ago and we worked together at at the BBC. And since then, you've gone on and had three gorgeous boys. They are young boys causing chaos at home and you're trying to write at the same time. Yeah, somebody asked me to write a piece called Raising Maniacs Whilst Writing and that sums it up really. Um, I've got three boys, nine, six and four. Um, and my career took off, my writing career took off when my third one was born, so in the last four years. So my husband and I always used to joke that I was doing all this stuff, all this work, that nothing was coming out of it, and he always used to joke, when the third one comes, it's all going to come together, and it's going to be crazy, and that's exactly what happens, just manic, you know, travelling to festivals, writing, trying to navigate martial arts and piano and all these things, it's absolutely crazy. Do you think being a successful author has changed the way that people see you, the way they interact with you? Completely. It's completely changed the way people see me. Um, So people saw me as a stay-at-home mother. A lot of people didn't know that I'd been a successful journalist before, that I'd worked in local papers, that I'd worked in telly. So when I moved to London, people saw me as a mother at the school gates and I was treated very differently to how I was when I had that BBC email address that opens lots of doors for you. And then suddenly I'm this successful author and it's almost as if I have something interesting to say that I didn't have to say before. And actually I have exactly the same things to say before, I just have a platform. So it's been fascinating seeing 
how people talk to me, how they react, um, you know, what they think of me, how they want to hear my opinion in a space where they maybe didn't before. And you've written a very strong Muslim character and you mm. as a Muslim woman have had your fair share of fights just to be heard, to get a place as an author, to get a place as a journalist, to be taken seriously. I have. So by the time I was 25, I'd been married and divorced twice. Um, I met my third husband when I was 36. So I started my career as a journalist when I was about 27. Um, and that was a fight because I didn't know how to get into the industry. I didn't know anything about how the industry worked. There wasn't anyone to help me. There was anyone who looked like me in the surrounding areas. Um, I was the kind of, sometimes I was the only woman of color in newsrooms. That was hard. Um, and then when I left again, I picked another career, another area writing where there were few people who looked like me. So again, being heard. Um, and the structures that exist are set up to work with existing models that have worked. So historically, we've had um, white women published or white men published. And so when they look at business models of that, they the finances they work out is based on that. So when you bring something completely new to an industry, it's not that they don't want to work with you, I think, and it's not that they don't want to publish these stories because they do. It's just the financial structures in place perpetuate what we've already got. So that's been hard to break through. The theme of this year's International Women's Day is embrace equity. Uh, and I think I've had discussions with people who are sort of like, well, well, what's the difference? You know, we always talk about equality, but this year it's about having a conversation about the difference between equality and equity. Do you feel that very strongly that that needs to change so that people like yourself going into newsrooms, going to meetings with publishing companies don't have quite the same fight? I think absolutely that needs to change. One of the things I found was when I started at BBC, because I'd had such a strong fight, hard fight beforehand, when I got there, I was exhausted in a way that I didn't even realise until much later. And I didn't realise that everybody else wasn't on the same playing field as me because you don't. You don't go into the world thinking I'm going in in my brown skin. You're just going in as who you are. Um, and so if, when you get to these big opportunities, you need a bit more support when you get there because you fought harder to get there. When you're there, you're tired and everybody else maybe has not fought. It's like running a race, really. You've run 100 metres more than everybody else. So you need the support to kind of maybe have a break or a rest without being seen as less than or unable to give what needs to be given to get to the next uh, milestone or the next goal that you set. So I absolutely believe that we need equity rather than equality. So how did that come about? Because as you say, a lot of these policies are created either, you know, thinking about middle-class, middle-aged white men, or now maybe thinking about middle-aged, middle-class white women, or sometimes thinking about working class or thinking about women of colour or men of colour, but it's it's a difficult conversation to have and, and it's hard to sort of look after everybody. It, it is really hard, Danny. And the thing I've learned as I've got older is it is a question of evolution, not revolution, because we need to take everybody with us and we need allyship across the board, across people, uh, race, gender, equality, sexuality. 
We need allies in every aspect of that to move forward. Um, so one thing I would say is the new opportunities that arise, the new structures that are built need to have equity built into them. And that is happening in certain industries where when they create structures, they look at them and they think we're going to have anti-racist policy. We're going to have, you know, equality for all people from all different aspects of society. But the other thing is just awareness to understand. I mean, this conversation about equity would not have happened 13 years ago. Um, it just wasn't happening. So those conversations are really important to have them because slowly when we go into these rooms, these boardrooms, these meeting rooms, um, the awareness makes people take a step back. And just that in itself makes it easier to bring change. So you think your voice at certain points has been listened to. Do you think you still need to shout louder than most people? Unfortunately, I do, because it is so incremental. I mean, it's excruciatingly incremental change, isn't it? Um, if you think that how long ago women got the vote in this country, it wasn't it wasn't that long ago. It's not like centuries and centuries ago. So as women, we're still fighting for equality, aren't we? And then we have the intersectionality of race and, um, you know, sexuality and all these kind of things. So I think we have to keep shouting until the playing field is level. And I think we don't stop shouting until it is because it's in everyone's interest. And it's, it is in the interest of that that kind of um, straight middle class white man as well, because I feel, feel he's being done a disservice. We look at um, figures around suicide in young men and depression. They're so high. It means that something is wrong within our society that we need to fix. And those men need us as much as we need them. So you're raising your voice and people are listening. Sometimes do you think maybe they're listening, but you're still not being heard? Completely. Absolutely. So my, my journey as a writer is fascinating because even though I'm um, a bestseller and I've hit lots of uh, goals along the way, I've won awards for journalism, I've been a bestseller, I've spoken at Yale, um, I get spoken to, you know, at festivals. Uh, but getting the next deal as a writer is always a scary thing, especially when you look at the finances of what people get offered. And again, it's to do with the structures that are in place. If I don't for a second think it's to do with the commissioning editors that I meet because they're all um, intelligent women and men who want to have equity and equality. But again, they're kind of beholden to these structures. So we keep shouting until the structures completely come down, until they're smashed and until everybody gets the same treatment in society. Because people assume once you're a best-selling author, that's it. You're absolutely minted. But you're a mum of three. You still have to contribute to your household finances. You're clearly not in a full-time job because you want to use your voice in a creative way. That must get quite tricky sometimes. It's really tricky. And, you know, I actually did think that once you're a best-selling author, that's it. The money comes rolling in. I, and, and now I think about it, what was I doing? And I do wonder what I'm doing in this industry, being a freelancer um, with three small children, you know, after school clubs to pay for and all these kind of things and bills and mortgage. And um, it's really tricky. But I sort of, I'm in it now 
my my struggle is that I'm in it and I'm halfway across the ocean and there's just nowhere to go and I have to cross over because I've come so far. Um, the Times called my novel a genre-busting book. So it's sort of like I'm further than anyone has kind of been in this, anyone who looks like me has been. So I've I've got to go. I'm, I might drown halfway through, but there's just no option. It, it is really hard. The finances of freelancing... No one tells you about that. No one tells you that people pay you late. You might have lots of invoices backed up that people want to pay, but your bank account is very low, um, which is which is kind of my situation at the minute. I've got a massive chunk of money I'm supposed to get, but um, but it's all it, there's lack of clarity. It's very opaque. Obviously, it's focusing on women. Uh, International Women's Day every year. The focus is on women. I've got two girls. So for me, that conversation is quite easy talking about equality, not so easy talking about equity. You've got three boys. They need to play a part in this journey as well. I think they have a very important part to play. One of the hardest things that I learned as a feminist was that women cannot do this work alone. So I, for a long time, believed that as a woman, I could do anything and I could just change the world myself. And that's what we were told when we were growing up, right? Um, and then I realized there was a, this is a myth because anyone who's ever got anywhere has been helped by other people. Men have been helped by women. Men have not done this alone. They have had women in the background, working hard, raising their children, doing all that work. Um, and women need the same. We need the support of our brothers, our fathers, our husbands, our partners, um, men in the in our industries, in our business places. And so what I want to teach my sons is the is about the, their place as allies for women and how it is equally important for them as it is for women. This isn't just about equal pay. This is about our well-being, emotional well-being as a society, that we have to treat everyone with equity for us to be happy. That's just such a perfect place to end it. Thank you so much. Saima Mir there and her best-selling book, The Khan, is now available in paperback and you can follow her on Twitter at Saima Mir or read any of her work in many national newspapers. Speaking of books, do check us out on social media. We have got an International Women's Day gift for you, a free download of the new edition of Inspirational Investing, which features a chapter on menopause and money based on Money Matters Research. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter and TikTok, all the social media, at AJBellMoneyMatters or at AJBMoneyMatters. And we'll put the link on there for you to download your free copy. And we've excitingly got a new website coming soon. So keep an eye out for that. We'll have details on future podcasts about how you can find that and all of the great stuff that you can find there. And on our next podcast, we have the great Claire Barrett, who is consumer editor at the Financial Times. She's a podcaster, a financial agony aunt, and an all-round great person, and also an author. So definitely listen to the next episode to hear from her. And while we're talking financial confessions, and that's a lovely little segue, because it is time, and Saima shared hers with me. Here we go, Laura. So I'm really ashamed of my confession. Um, So I didn't realise that I needed to opt in to the pension. It's a pension one. It's a boring pension thing. When I started at various places and I just thought, 
that time was miles away and I didn't opt in. And that is my terrible financial profession. I imagine you've done something about it since though. I have indeed, yes. Because <laughs> it's it's amazing how quickly that sort of I know mountain gets closer and closer and closer. It just flashes between your before your eyes, doesn't it, life? Not between but before. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Simon. So I think lots of people will definitely echo her thoughts there. That it's that classic case of not getting started early enough, whether that's with your pension, whether that's investing, saving. Um, I think everyone will have done that at some point in their lives, weren't they, with some area of their lives. And you do kick yourself when you realise what you've done. And and hindsight is a wonderful thing, which, of course, is why we talk all the time about the need to start early, to tell your friends to start early, to tell your daughters, your cousins, everybody, start early if you can. If you have a financial confession that you want to share, maybe because it's a topic you want us to tackle, then get in touch either via social media or you can email us moneymatters at ajbell.co.uk. And that is everything for this special episode. So make sure that you review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast and recommend us to a family, friends, a neighbor, talk to the person sitting next to you on the train right now, um, tell more people about us. And thanks a lot for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.